The following message was recorded at Christ Church in Bartlett, Tennessee. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.ccbartlett.org. Thank you for leading us this morning. You, you puck it, brothers. Are, you're all right. You're all right in my book, right? Don't, I, don't they sound like, uh, yeah, okay, all right. Yeah, all right, all right. The Puckett Brothers, doesn't that sound like um, like a criminal like organization, right? Like bank robbers? You know those Puckett Brothers? A 60s rock and roll. A 60s rock and roll. The Puckett Brothers. <laughs> One's got to play the stand-up bass though, right? Um, we are so happy you're with us this, uh, this morning on Advent Sunday, our first Advent Sunday, which is just crazy to me to think at how quickly this year seems to have passed by. And, and yet here we are, the first Sunday of Advent. This is a time where we celebrate the light of the world coming into um, where we are, coming into the darkness that we live in. And that's one of the reasons why we light these candles. It's one of the reasons we, we have this symbol here is that we are remembering a dark, dark time when the light of the world broke through and we are celebrating that although we still live in a dark, dark time, the light of the world is coming, amen, right? He's coming for us. And so we remember that and we celebrate that. And so our Advent series this year, it's called Unexpected. It's called Unexpected. When you think about Jesus coming the way he came, it was unexpected. I mean, here he comes through a, a virgin birth. Anybody ever uh, had one of those before? Exactly, a virgin birth. And not only, he's, he's a kid. King, right, and he's born, and he's born into obscurity, and and he spends his first night on this planet among animals in a stable, right, probably in a cave somewhere, and and he's laying in a manger. I don't know about you, but all of my kids, like we went out, we had to buy the most, the latest and greatest bed, right, the Tempur-Pedic, whatever. We're sleeping on top of cardboard, but it doesn't matter as long as they've got the best. And Jesus is in a feeding trough, right, and then the way that the ruler of the time celebrated him and welcomed him into the world is tried to kill him. And he killed all of these children to try to wipe out Jesus. I mean, it's an unexpected story. This is God's big rescue plan. It's an unexpected way to do it. And I think one of the things that's unexpected about it as well is his family. I mean, Jesus is not like Kellel or Superman, right? He didn't just drop down from the sky and boom, he's here. He had a family. He came through this, this lineage of, of Mary. And if you go back and look at the gospel, and that's where we're going to be today, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. So we're going to spend uh, the rest of our time together as we look forward to Christmas. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 1. And it starts with what? It starts with a genealogy. It starts with looking at his family. Now, what would you find if you looked into your genealogy? Maybe it would be like, I'm reminded of this little girl goes and talks to her mom and said, you know, where did we come from? And she said, well... God created Adam and Eve, and then they had kids, and you know we're descended from them. And he went, she went and talked to her father and said, where do we come from? And he said, well, uh, we evolved from apes. Uh, so we started out as apes and, and monkeys, and then you know we became this. And she got real confused, and she couldn't reconcile the two. And she goes to her mother and says, you told me Adam and Eve, and, and, and Daddy said that he comes from, from monkeys, and I don't know how that works. And he, she goes, it's very simple. Um, I told you about my side of the family, and he's telling you about his side of the family. And so if we look into your genealogy, what are we going to find? What, what's it going to look like? I mean, if you go back, so, so when I was a kid, one of the things that I really loved was the Civil War. Like that was something, that sounds weird. I love war. No, but I, I was really interested. That's a better way of putting it. I was really interested in the Civil War. And I wanted to know if I had, and probably because, I mean, I knew people, you know, who served in it. My dad served proudly in the Civil War. 
Uh, just, it just, it was excellent. So anyway, um, never forget. Uh, so as I look back at the Civil War, like I wondered what family of my father did I have serving in the Civil War? And I looked into it and, and on my mom's side of the family, the, the McCaskills, because uh, my dad's side of the family, we weren't here yet, right? We were in England or France or something else lame. Anyway, but my, but my mom's family, we were here, right? America. And so I looked into it and this is what I found. We had one person in our family who served on the union side. So we had one winner, right? So he served on the union side and he was an officer, like decorated officer. Then we had a bunch of Confederates and they were all privates. Like they weren't officers, they were all, and this is, this is my family's legacy. You ready? This is, in, this is my story, okay? We had one who was killed in camp by one of his own men because they got in a fight. I don't know what they fought over, but he got killed over it. So there's, there's one of my heroes. And we also have, we had a guy who was killed friendly fire on the battlefield. That's a little bit more understandable. We had a couple of deserters who were just like, I'm out. I don't want to do this anymore. And they left. And here's my favorite. This really sums up my family. Uh, we had one who, he, he died as well in the Civil War. Uh, he drank himself to death in camp. He was pre-gaming so hard for the battle that he was going into that he just died. He just gave up the ghost, right? And uh, that's my story. That's my family. What would we find in your family story? What would we find? And maybe you say, you know what? I, I've never done like any of that Ancestry.com stuff or whatever. I've never, I've never looked back into my family. We don't really have a family historian, but okay. What will I find in your immediate family? If you look back as far as you can remember, what do we find? And you know, for some of you, they may be really, really proud moments. There may be people you're incredibly proud of. I'm incredibly proud of my, I have wonderful parents. I'm incredibly proud of my father and my mother. I'm incredibly proud of my, of my grandparents. They worked hard and my, my grandmother, my, both of my grandmothers loved the Lord. I'm very, very proud of them. But there might be people in your family that if you're honest, maybe you're not so proud. And, and let me give you a little tip. If they're sitting with you uh, right now, just go, no, not you, not you. No, not you, no, no, no. I don't know what he's talking about. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so anyway, maybe you have those moments. But, I mean, the old adage is true, right? You can pick your friends, you can pick your nose, but you can't pick your friend's nose. How do you guys not know that? Uh, yeah, you can't pick your family. It doesn't matter. Like, I didn't choose to be born in the family I was born into. You didn't choose to be born in the family you were born into. It's just, that's just how it works. But what's crazy and what's so unexpected is that Jesus could. Jesus absolutely could. God was completely in control of Matthew chapter one, this genealogy of Jesus. There wasn't a point where God was like, I don't know how it's gonna turn out. I don't know. I know like this is, this is gonna be one of Jesus' relatives, but I don't, I, don't know, I don't know how that's gonna turn out. No, he knew the whole time. He was guiding it the entire time. He could pick. Now, if you are picking the son of God, the savior of the world's genealogy, how are you gonna fill that up? I'm filling that up with perfect priests, right? Just kings, like courageous warriors, like incredibly loving people, people who've got it all together, people who take care of other people, people who are champions for other people, like the selfless ones. That is what I'm putting, like if, if I made Jesus' genealogy, it would have like, he, like his grandfather would be Chuck Norris, his dad would be John Cena. Like it would be this incredible family line because I could do it. I could shape it and form it. And God could do the same thing, and he did do the same thing. He shaped and he formed this genealogy. And who is in that line? Prostitutes, liars, cowards, adulterers, murderers, losers. 
Like that's in his line. This is the genealogy of Jesus. This is the family that he chose. Why does his family look like that? Well, to answer that, let's think about food. And I know, we just had Thanksgiving. Some of you are still full, and I get that, right? How many of you this morning, you ate like some really cold turkey or ham, right? You open the fridge, you go, you know what, today I'm gonna be good. I'm just get some orange juice, just, you know, get like a light breakfast, and then there's that ham, like just looking at you, and it's like, eat me, right? And so, you you know, you ate some ham this morning, and that's fine, that's fine, but let's talk about food. If, if you were to take uh, a coworker, maybe you and a coworker, you gotta go visit a client or something, and <clears throat> excuse me, on your way back into the office, you stop by McDonald's and you have a meal there. What does that meal mean? What's the significance of that mean? It means it's convenient. It means it's fast and you're just trying to get back to the office, right? What if, what if instead you grab, let's say you've got a client and you go grab, you go to Firebirds, you know, a little bit step up of McDonald's, but still below Burger King. And so anyway, you take a client to Firebirds. What does that signify? What's the significance of that meal? That meal is, uh, I want to sell you something or I want to keep you happy, right? Like I, wanna, I, want to, I want you to stay with me, keep your business with me. But think about your Thanksgiving meal. What did that meal signify? Like who did you invite? <coughs> Who'd you invite? It wasn't a client from work. It wasn't a stranger. Who'd you invite? Your family, your friends, the people closest to you. That's who you had at your table. And what did that meal signify? That meal was a, a, a meal of unity, like we're together and we, we're going to stay together. This is us. That was a meal of intimacy. Like I want to know you. I want you to know me. You're in my home. I mean, think about it. It's in your home. What are you saying? You're saying you belong here. I want you here. I mean, it's one thing to take somebody to Firebirds. It's one thing to meet somebody at McDonald's. It's a whole other ball game to invite them into your home, especially for Thanksgiving because what happens? I don't know how you do Thanksgiving at your house. What we do is we eat. And then we eat until we're like sick and then we watch football and we fall asleep and we wake up and start eating again, right? And so when you invite someone to Thanksgiving, you're saying, you come to my house and you stay at my house. You belong here. I want you here. And think about like all the work you do for the meal or all the work that somebody else does for the meal. But somebody does a lot of work for the meal. I don't know how it happens. I just know that I show up, I have one job, and that's to pray right before the meal, right? I'm the professional prayer. And so I just know that, and then all of a sudden food is there. I don't know how it happens. It's a miracle every time. I don't, maybe, am I doing it through prayer? I don't know. I don't, I'll look into that. But, but when people work hard for that meal, what are you saying? You're valuable. You are worth it to me to put all of this effort into it. And you think about them sitting there and talking with you. I want you to know me and I, and I, want, and, and I want to know you better. And the first century meals of, of Jesus' days, they were the same as his Thanksgiving meals. There weren't McDonald meals. There weren't Firebird meals. There weren't client meals. There weren't all these meals. If you were to have a meal with someone, sit down with someone, invite them into your home, this was like Thanksgiving. This was a big, big deal. You were sending that message. You didn't just share meals with anybody. This was a big deal. This was a symbol of unity and intimacy, and I want to know you, and you were valuable to me, and you belong here. And I think that's why Jesus got this a lot. Look at Luke chapter 5. I think we'll put it on the screen. Luke chapter 5, look at verse 30. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They saw the symbolism. They saw the depth of what it meant to share those meals together. And they said, no, no, no. All right, Jesus, you might be a little bit confused. I don't know if you know how meals work, okay? You are sending this message that you love, that, that, that you are loving these people and that you're connected to these people and that you value these people and that you want them to know you and you want to know them. Like, why in the world are you spending time with them? And Jesus' response, look at verse 31 through 32. And Jesus 
Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The answer, this answer explains this messy genealogy of Jesus. And here it is. The genealogy of Jesus will stand forever as a testimony to who is welcome to Jesus' table. And that's sinners. The genealogy of Jesus, this messy, this weird looking family that you and I would never have put together if we're piecing together Jesus' family. This, 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 just, this patchwork of all of these flawed people, it's, it stands forever as a testimony to who's welcome at Jesus' table and that is sinners. Not the people who think they have it all together like these Pharisees and these scribes, but the people who know they don't have it all together. The people who are desperate for God's grace. That's who's welcome at Jesus' table. And what a wonderful way to start this gospel. I mean, think about it. He's writing this letter. I want to tell you about this Jesus guy. I want to tell you about the Son of God. Immediately, when you hear that, when you hear those words, Son of God, immediately, that's somebody high above. That's somebody separate, right? Like, that's somebody that's not like me. And Matthew starts, he says, no, 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 you don't know where he came from. You don't know who he's connected to, right? And what's he sending that message of? He's sending that message, Jesus saying, I know real people. I know messy people, all right? I have the weird uncles, okay? Like I know people who are hurting. I know people who've made huge mistakes and they are exactly who I came for. You are welcome at my table. And maybe, maybe I don't know everybody that came here today. I don't know what brought you here today, but maybe that's what you needed to hear, that you are welcome to God's table. You are welcome to God's table. That means that he wants you that means that he values you. That means that he's inviting you to know him. You are welcome. And maybe after all that I've said, and maybe after looking at that genealogy, you still don't see it. And maybe, maybe, you need, maybe you need to see it a little bit clearer. So let's look at this unexpected family. The first thing you're going to see is that you're going to see that his family includes the flawed. If you're expecting people to be in the genealogy of Jesus, you absolutely expect Abraham. You'd absolutely expect David. I mean, Abraham, uh, according to Romans, is the father of all who believe, all right? Like God promised him, I will build this nation out of you, right? I mean, that's a, that's a really, really big deal. David, the same. Like David is an important guy, right? A guy after, after God's own heart. Okay, these are people I expect to be here. And yet, they are deeply flawed men, too. These aren't perfect People, I mean, look at Abraham. One of his problems was he had a huge fear of man. <clears throat> now, that doesn't mean he walked around every time he saw a person coming. Going, ah, that's not what that's talking about. What does it mean to fear men? It's a fear of disapproval of other people, right? It's a fear. It's to fear the disapproval of others more than you fear anything else. Abraham hated to upset people. He hated to disappoint people. It was like it, he felt all kinds of anxiety and, and it was a lot of fear in him. That's what it was. A lot of fear in him about, uh, about disappointing people. And <clears throat> I'm sorry, when I think of fear, there's a story that just keeps going through my mind. Of um, We went to go see the Polar Express the other day at, uh, at the Pink Palace. And uh, if, you've, if you've ever sat there, it's like stadiums. It's like IMAX, so stadium seating to the extreme, you know, like you're sitting right on top of other people. And, and so my son, we had, we had a friend, uh, some friends who were sitting in front of us and, and my son like got down on his knees and he put his, he put his arms and his elbows on the seat next to my friend, but my friend didn't know Max was there. Like he had no idea. It's like dark. And so Max like sitting right there. So he's right in his ear. 
And uh, this scene comes on in the Polar Express where the kids walk on a train track. And we talk to our kids about don't ever walk on train tracks. And they're like, why? And we're like, you'll die. Like that, you know what I mean? Like that's just the easiest way to put it. Like what will happen? Will a train you? I don't know. You'll just die. Like it's a proven fact. And so, um, so Max is sitting there. These kids walk on the train track. And, and again, remember, my friend has no idea. Max is there. He just whispers, they're going to die. Which, which has forever changed the way I've watched, I will watch Polar Express. Like every time, I say, they're going to die. That's fear. Maybe you are paralyzed by fear, by fear of disappointing people, fear of upsetting people. And, and you have real anxiety about it. I mean, think about maybe it's your boss, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's your friends, but you have this incredible fear. And also the fear of man means that you also, you're a people pleaser. You want to make people happy. I mean, anybody in here a people pleaser? I know how to out you. It would make me very happy if you raise your hand right now. <laughs> got him, got him, got him. All right, yeah, we got you. All right. Uh, yeah, so he was a people pleaser, and that was, that was Abraham. And, and, Prover- and Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare. It's a trap. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And Abraham regularly fell in that trap. And maybe you do too. He had another problem, though. The combination of the fear of man and this problem was really difficult for him. It's a problem that, that I struggle with, that I've struggled with for, for over a decade at this point. Um, his wife was too beautiful. And look, look, I know, I know, look, I know. You're going to be like, Grant, uh, is there anything we can do to help you? And no, there isn't, all right? I thought that time would handle it, and she gets, she gets prettier. Like every year, she's just prettier and prettier. Is she red yet? How red are you? Okay, yeah, all right, cool. Uh, so Abraham had the same problem. He had a beautiful wife. And you go, why is that a problem? Because as he traveled, he's afraid of what people would do to him. He's afraid that these powerful people would see his beautiful wife and say, I want to make her mine. I guess I'll kill Abraham and I'll take her for myself. Now think about this. Abraham has talked to God. God has made promises to him. And what? He's afraid. He's so afraid of what other people could do to him and would do to him that he ends up scheming. And what he ends up saying is he says to his wife, Sarah, hey, look, you know, you know you're pretty. I know you're pretty. Everybody knows you're pretty. Listen, they might kill me to take you away from me. So when we go meet Pharaoh, we run into somebody of any power or whatever, just say you're my sister. And what is it? He pimps them out. And I mean, he shows up to Pharaoh and Pharaoh's like, yep, I want that one. And, and Abraham's like, hey, no problem. It's just my sister. And so he like, pimps out his, sister, his wife to protect his neck. And what happens is the Lord protects her. Abraham doesn't, but the Lord does it. And so he puts this plague, he sends this plague on Pharaoh and his family and, and, and Pharaoh figures it out. And he comes to Abraham and he goes, what did you do to me? Why did you do this? What did I do to you that you would do this to me? Take your wife back. What in the world? Why, would, why did you just say it was your wife? And Abraham's like, I don't know. And so then like, here's the thing. He does it again. They run into Abimelech and Abimelech goes, Yeah, I like her. I'll take her. And so the same thing happens. Abraham doesn't protect his wife, but the Lord does. And the Lord sends his plague on Abimelech's house. And the Lord speaks to Abimelech in a dream. And he says, hey, Sarah is actually Abraham's wife. If you don't give her back, I'll kill you. And he's like, cool. And so he wakes up and he goes to Abraham. He goes, why did you do this? Why did you do this to me? Like, why, what have I done to you? Take her, right? Like, take her and, and here's some gifts and pray for me. Like, please, like, I don't want this. 
And so Abraham had God speaking to him, making promises to him. And yet his fear of people, his fear of man was so big. His anxiety was so huge that he didn't trust God. It overruled his trust in God. Abraham was flawed, deeply flawed. And maybe you're flawed like Abraham. Maybe anxiety is a big deal for you. Maybe anxiousness is a big deal for you. Maybe people's opinions about you leaves you with a lot of fear and a lot of uncomfortability. So much so that you don't trust God to take care of you because of it. Let Abraham's presence in the genealogy of Jesus be a testimony to you that God invites you, the anxious people pleaser, to his table. You're invited to his table. You look at David. David was a flawed guy. David had a self-control problem. We, we, of course, maybe you're familiar with the story. Maybe you're not. He's supposed to be away at war and instead he's at home and he sees a woman bathing. And he sees her bathing. Now, what would you do, right? Like you're the king, like, like you, are, you, you and God have got this thing going on, right? You see this woman bathing, you immediately, you're like, oh no, all right. Hey, we need new blinds. Whoever my royal blind maker is, I need blinds over here, right? No, David keeps watching her and watching her till finally he says, I must have her. He knows this is wrong. He knows this won't honor the Lord. I must have her. And he sins for her and he sleeps with her and she gets pregnant. And then he freaks out and tries to cover it up. And so ultimately he ends up plotting the death of her husband to cover up what he's done. And this resulted in the death of his child that he had with Bathsheba and, and all kinds of other difficulties in his family. He had incredibly poor self-control that led him to some really dark places, some really dark, dark days. Has your lack of self-control led you to places that you don't recognize? Maybe you're in a place where you're like, I don't know how my marriage got this way, but it is woefully broken. Or I'm in this incredibly lonely place. Or I have this porn addiction I can't get past. Or I've hurt so many people around me that love me so dearly, and I don't know how to fix it. And you go, how did I get here? And you can trace it back to David. You can trace it back to that flaw of self-control. And that was David's testimony. And that's David's testimony to us. That even though he was a flawed man, even though he struggled with the self-control, he was still a man after God's own heart. He was welcome at God's table, and so are you. And you keep looking at David. David, he was a weak father. He was not a good dad. And he, he didn't step in when he should have stepped in and, and been there for his kids. I mean, you think about his son Amnon uh, raped his daughter, who was Amnon's half-sister Tamar, and he did nothing. He was a coward. He wouldn't stand up and he wouldn't, he wouldn't do what was right on behalf of his daughter. And he wouldn't do what was right on behalf of his son Amnon and come after him. And that neglect led to a disastrous, disastrous events where Tamar's brother Absalom murders Amnon. And then Absalom ends up usurping David's throne and David ends up running away. And then ultimately David's own general ends up killing his son. I mean, it's just this messy horrible, horrible thing. And you know what? I, I, David certainly wouldn't win any Parent of the Year awards. And I gotta be honest, I'm not, I, I, don't, I don't feel like I'm in the running too often either. And there's nothing that breaks my heart more than when I fail my kids. You know what I'm talking about? Like when you yell at them and then you get done and you realize, why did I raise my voice? They, this isn't their problem, this is, this is my problem. When I hurt their feelings and there's no reason to do that, that's not the loving, considerate thing to do. When I'm impatient for, for no reason, when I'm mad at them for being kids, because that's what kids do when they break something, because kids 
break things, when they, when they, when they scream and run through the house, because that's what kids do. And I get upset and I get agitated and I get annoyed and then I, I yell at them or I tell them to stop. I hate that. I hate failing them like that. Or, or when I don't follow through on something that I told them I would do or I, I don't punish them because I'm lazy when I should punish them and correct them and lead them to a, a better place. I hate that. It's embarrassing. But let David's testimony to you be the same to me, that you are welcome at God's table. The flawed are welcome at God's table. Also, if you look at his family, you've got the outcast. If you look at verse 3 and 5 there in Matthew chapter 1, a couple of names are going to pop out to you. You see Ruth and Tamar. Look at Ruth. Ruth came from the Moabites. This is a pagan group of people who, who, who fought Israel all the time. They did not get along. And Ruth's presence here, if you are a first century Jew, you are looking at this genealogy, her presence there would be shocking to you. It would be like if we got home or we got an alert on your phone or whatever that just said, hey, by the way, uh, the president is giving the Medal of Honor to a uh, known terrorist, right? You'd be like, what in the world? This person doesn't belong here. And this is Ruth. She had a rough background. She came from a rough place. She had no right to marry an Israelite, one of God's people. But God provided Boaz for her very graciously and mercifully, and she became the grandmother of King David. She became King David's grandmother. And again, Ruth's presence here would shock you with the same shock that we saw in Luke chapter 5, verse 30, where those Pharisees, they said to Jesus, why do you eat and drink with these people? That kind of shock would have been there for Ruth. They don't belong here. And maybe you feel the same way. I don't belong here at God's table. I'm not the most faithful. I'm not the most spiritual. I don't have it all figured out. I don't, I don't belong here. I just don't. I don't fit in here. May the testimony of Ruth be clear to you today that, that you don't decide who belongs at God's table. Nobody decides who belongs at God's table. God decides. And God looks at the outcasts and he says, you belong. Not because of what you've done, but because of what, what I've done. I've paid a huge price for you to belong. I've shed my blood for you to belong. You belong at my table. You look at another outcast, look at Tamar. Tamar has a dark story, a really, really dark story. It's in Genesis chapter 38, if you'd like to read it later, but we see Judah um, is trying to find a a wife for his son Ur and uh, gets Tamar. And Ur was a wicked man. We don't know what he did, but it says that he was so wicked um, that, that God took his life. Like God killed him for his wickedness. I don't know what it was, but I'm, he had to be doing something more than sharing somebody's Netflix password. Like it had to be like real bad. Don't know what it was, but it wasn't good. And so what happened was uh, uh, Judah says, okay, Tamar, um, I'm going to take my other son. I'm going to give you to him and he'll give you a child and, and, and all of that. And so uh, Ur's brother Onan uh, decided to have sex with her, but he didn't want to impregnate her. And so he purposefully did not. Um, and because of that, he died. Like God saw what he was doing and saw it wasn't appropriate and saw that he was misusing this woman, abusing this woman. He took his life too. And so now like Judah is like, okay, all right, I know I need to give you another one of my sons, but uh, they keep dying. So why don't you go live with your parents? You be a widow. Let one of my other sons grow up. Give them some time to grow up. And then you can have him. And she's, she decides to take matters into her own hands. And Judah ends up going to, again, in the genealogy of Jesus, Judah goes to have um, sex with uh, cult prostitutes. 
cool. And so he goes to do that, and Tamar says, I'm going to have a child. I'm going to have, not only am I going to have a child, I'm going to have a child in this family. I'm going to have Judah's child. She dresses up like one of these prostitutes and tricks him into sleeping with her, right? Not, he was going to sleep with one of them. It wasn't like, oh, what happened? No, he tricked her into, like, he didn't know it was Tamar. She ends up getting pregnant. He comes back to her and is like, well, time to kill you because you didn't stay pure for my family. And she says, actually, you're the one who got me pregnant. And Judah's like, well, darn. So this is her story. This is her story. And she ends up giving, uh, giving birth to twins, um, which might be proof that, that uh, twins are a little bit of a punishment. All right, I'm just going to go ahead and say, Mom and Dad, I'm sorry, very sorry. Uh, I don't know what I did. Uh, but anyway, no, she ends up giving twin, uh, birth to twins. This is a dark story. This is not a story you tell uh, at, at Thanksgiving and Christmas time. This is not a story that you share at family reunions. This is dark. This is messed up. I mean, this is wickedness that God killed people over, that type of darkness. This is a messed up story. And yet, Tamar is in his family. And maybe you have a dark story too. Maybe you have a history that's filled with, with compromises and bad decisions and just hurt people all over the place. And, and you've got a story that maybe no one else knows, only you know. Maybe you're a victim. Maybe the only other person who knows you're a victim is the person who victimized you. Maybe you have a dark, dark story. And because of that dark story, you feel like you don't belong. You're an outsider. Listen to Jesus' words again in Luke 5. These Pharisees and these, these scribes, they say, Jesus, you shouldn't be eating with these people. These people don't belong here. And what did he say? I didn't come for the, the well. I didn't come for the people who had it all together. I came for this. I came into this dark place for them. I'm here to rescue them. Don't tell me they don't belong here. They do belong here. They belong to me. I came for them. I came for the sick. I came for the sinners. I came for the broken. I came. So let Tamar's presence say to you, you with a dark story, you who might be in the middle of that story right now, let her presence in the family of God say this to you right now, that you belong at God's table. You do. Jesus paid a high price for you too. And don't let anyone, don't let the enemy, don't let other people, don't let that whisper in your mind tell you any different. You are welcome to God's table. And that's the story of Christmas, of Jesus coming, an unexpected story, an unexpected family here. You are welcome at God's table. The flawed, the outcast, those who are anxious and worry and they're people-pleasing and the people who lack self-control and with cowardice and huge mistakes and, and all of this, you are welcome at God's table. Jesus came to bring you to his table. One of my favorite instances with Jesus comes towards the end of his life where he's having dinner. This really, again, we know what that means now. We know that this is a very important thing, an intimate thing, and so he's having this dinner with these people who are important and they have it all together and this woman comes in and she's overwhelmed with gratitude for what God has done for her and she goes to Jesus and she begins to kiss his feet and she's weeping all right she's not crying there's no little tear in the corner of her eye she's weeping uncontrollably over Jesus's feet so much so that she's able to wash his feet with her tears and she begins to wipe her his feet 
dry with her hair. This incredible, this incredible moment where this outcast and this flawed human being came and she's just pouring herself out at the feet of Jesus at this table that she did not belong to. And what did Jesus do? He sent her away, he cast her away, he said, don't touch me, you don't belong here. No, what did he do? He said, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What was he saying? You're valuable. You matter to me. You belong here. You aren't all of these dark experiences. This is not what defines you. I define you. And I say that you can go in peace. I say that you're new. I say that you belong here. Forget what they say. Forget those whispers in your mind. I say you belong here. Jesus isn't afraid of our mess. He isn't afraid of the difficulties. He came for us. So this unexpected family can stand as a billboard for all of time, shouting for all of eternity, you are welcome to God's table. You are welcome. But what about my, you are welcome. But what about you are welcome to God's table. He came for us. So this morning, talk to yourself. Tell yourself that Christmas story. Forget Rudolph. Forget the snowman. Tell yourself this story. That Jesus came into the darkness. The light of the world came into the darkness to get us He didn't call us out of the darkness and say, hey, come up here, come to the light, find your way. He came into our messiness. He came into the flaws. He came into the the, the garbage here. He came into all of it to rescue us and to say, you belong to me. Tell yourself the story this Christmas. Tell others the story. As I think about this and I think about my children, how will I tell them this story? We focus so much on like buying little cute nativities and and all that stuff. And that's wonderful and that should be celebrated. We should talk about that. But how can I communicate this to my son? That he is forever welcome at Jesus' table. And all of the flaws and all of the mistakes he will make and all of the things that will happen to him, nothing cancels that truth out that he is welcome at God's table. Let's tell our children this. Let's tell the people in our world this. What better news do we have this Christmas? Forget Black Friday sales. Forget all these other things. Forget Christmas music, though I love it. Forget all the decorations and all that. What a great story we have to tell people. You could say to people this Christmas, do you know the story of Christmas? Yeah, know the the baby and and all that other stuff yeah yeah yeah. god get that but do you know anything about jesus family do you know where he came from do you know what that means for you it means that you belong at his table that you're welcome to his table we have a great message to tell this christmas so speak it this christmas let's find a way to tell this story let's find a way to tell the real story not the hallmark one not the one where Jesus is all got a nice little blonde hair and it's combed just perfectly to the right. Not all of that, but we can tell this real story. This story where the light of the world came into the darkness and everything that that means. So that you and I can look at anybody else in this entire world and say, no matter what has happened to you, no matter where you've come from, you are welcome to God's table. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, as we um, prepare to respond to you this morning, um, 
we can't do anything but say thank you. God, that you didn't come like you could have. You, you didn't just come and show up and say, I'm king, worship me, this is how this works. You didn't just show up and say, I'm the perfect judge. You are all sinners. You are all cast away from me. Instead, you came into our darkness, the light of the world, coming into our darkness to save us, to rescue us. And God, there are way too many times than I can count where I don't feel like I belong at your table. My heart is too hard at times. My, my, the darkness in my own life is too dark. My, my attitudes and my thoughts, they don't line up with things that would please you. I don't belong here. You've made a mistake. And maybe my brothers and sisters in this room feel the same. Lord, thank you that you've given us this genealogy to look at. You've given us this truth, this, this billboard across that stretches across all of time. That because of what Jesus has done for us, we are welcome to your table. You want to know us. We can come close to you. We can be loved by you. We can be forgiven by you. We can be made new through you. Thank you for that. Lord, my prayer for my brothers and sisters in this room is the same for me, is that we would walk out of here inspired by your love this morning and we would be ready to tell ourselves, to tell our spouses, to tell our children, to tell our coworkers, to tell those that you've put into our lives, to tell them the real story of Christmas that Jesus has come and has invited them to sit at his table. That he has done what we couldn't do. We couldn't reach up, but you reached down. The light has come into the darkness to invite us in. So God, thank you for what you've done. And Lord, there might be people in this room who are hearing this for the first time. And I don't mean literally the first time, but for the first time their hearts are alive. And they're hearing about your love. And they know now. They didn't know yesterday, but they know now with a deep knowledge in their heart and their mind that they are deeply loved by you. And that, God, they are invited to your table. That you have a new life for them. God, right now, in their hearts, would you begin to move? Would you give them the prayer to pray back to you? Would you give them the words to say to you right now in the quietness of their heart and mind? Would you give them the words to simply say to you that I want to be forgiven, that I want a new life? I believe you love me. I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe that you're inviting me to follow you. I believe you're alive so I can be alive. I don't have to live this way anymore. So God, forgive me. Change me. I'm following you from this day forward. God, thank you that you're changing lives this morning. We love you. It's in your name. Amen.